Okay. Uh, if you will, be opening up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> As you know, the last few weeks uh, since we've been back in class, we've been studying the Gospel of John. And, uh, of course, the Gospel of John is a wonderful gospel. It's a little bit different than the first three, right? The first three we call the synoptic gospels because they're very similar. And I'll, I'm going to keep reminding you about these things because we always have a couple of people that may be tuning in online or maybe have not been here yet. And I want to reiterate some of the things uh, that show the background, a little bit about the foundation and the history. Of course, John is, is, is different in writing even. Uh, the style is a little different. It's not necessarily in chronological order either, you'll notice as we go through it. Some things occur and then it seems like it goes back in time and forth in time. So things like that actually happen a little bit. Uh, <coughs> so, excuse me. So, we're going to see some interesting things in John. Um, last week, we talked about the first disciples, right? If you were here. Um, and who were they? Andrew, Simon Peter, remember? Uh, Philip and, and uh, Nathaniel, who we also said, if you look in the synoptics, you'll see the name Bartholomew. You don't see the name Nathaniel, and John doesn't mention Bartholomew, but most scholars would say that that's one and the same. And it's, if you do look at the verses in the synoptics, uh, Philip and Bartholomew are kind of grouped together in that sense. So that's probably the same person. And we saw some things about how these men reacted when they discovered that they had found the Messiah, right? They had found the Christ. I mean, Andrew was very inquisitive, very, he wanted to know, he was seeking, you could tell he was seeking for the truth, and he followed immediately. John the Baptist said, here's one that, I am not worthy to loose the straps of his sandals. And Andrew was ready to go and bring Simon Peter with him. Uh, we also saw Philip, who Philip did what? He came and found Nathaniel, said, come and see. And what did Nathaniel say? Do you remember what Nathaniel said? Let's look back up there and see. Interesting statements. And there's something I was not able to cover last week I wanted to just mention real quick. Look in chapter 1 there, verse 46. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember that they had the prophecies, right? That, that the Messiah was to come out of where? Bethlehem, right? Yeah. And of course, we know he was born in Bethlehem. But they don't know that yet, right? They, they're not understanding that. And apparently Nazareth was not considered a, a, a real good real place or perhaps no prophets. Well, we know no prophets had come out of that area. So he says, could anything good come out of Nazareth? And what's Philip say? Philip says to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Immediately Jesus says, I, I see you. I see your heart. You say what you're going to say. You don't mess around. And immediately now Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now that's an interesting statement. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's keep reading. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And you will see greater things than those. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What's the significance of saying Nathaniel was under the fig tree? Jesus saw him before Philip even called him, right? Well, this probably says more about Jesus than it does Nathaniel. Most likely, Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree, contemplating or perhaps 
uh, contemplating something about the God or the Old Testament, or, or he's in devotion, perhaps. Perhaps he's praying. Jesus is saying, I saw you. I saw that before. What this is saying is Jesus knows the heart, right? He knows our hearts probably better than we do ourselves, right? It's interesting. And he even mentions that you're going to see greater things than these. And, of course, Daniel knows, well, he knows what I, he saw me. Well, I, I didn't even notice him, and he's already noticing me. That's, that's fantastic. He has to be the Son of God. Just by that, he's believing already. And it's interesting, he mentions about the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And of course, we know that's a reference to what? Remember the dream that Jacob had? You know, the, the ladder, angels ascending from heaven and ascending back into heaven. Perhaps it's relating to that, alluding to that. Perhaps Nathaniel was contemplating that a little bit while he was sitting under the fig tree. Jesus sees us, right? When we are in worship or we are in devotion, when we're in prayer, we're seen, right? The prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. You have confidence in that. You have confidence in that Jesus knows your heart. He knows if you are trying to serve, if you are trying to grow spiritually, if you're trying to match your will with God's will, those things are seen. You have confidence in that, and that's that's comforting, isn't it? That's comforting, especially in a time of need, especially in a time of sickness when you're not sure what's going to happen. Especially in a time when we're, we got an election come up. It's, it's a trying time, isn't it? We hear lots of different things going on, lots of different viewpoints. We don't know necessarily how things are going to turn out, right? Yet God sees all. He sees the hearts of men, and he knows he's in control. That's very comforting. We've talked about, in the past few weeks, the purpose of the book of John. Turn over to John chapter 20, and we're going to read it again. We're going to keep reading this and keep reading it until it's in your heart and on your mind. Chapter 20, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I mean... He did a lot that are written, right? I can't imagine what that was like to see so many other signs. <clears throat> but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We talked about the disciples last week, <clears throat> and now we're going to talk about a little bit about this purpose that he mentions here, these signs today. The signs which uh, the disciples were able to see. The signs that were able to help them produce faith, strengthen their faith. Strengthen their faith that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The signs that Jesus performed were miracles. They were. What's a miracle? Well, miracle is a supernatural event. Something that shows divine power. Something that when somebody witnesses it, there can be no doubt, right? That that came from someone greater. That a man couldn't do that. That's not possible. It had to come from a supernatural power. It had to come from God. And so, turn over to Acts chapter 2 just a second. And let's read a little bit about that. 
What, what does that mean? What, what is it about these signs that Jesus performed that the disciples were able to witness? Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter's sermon. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter's saying, these signs that Jesus did are from God. He did them through him. He attested to God. A man in the flesh who came to earth attested to God by these signs that he performed. Well, the first sign is recorded in the second chapter of John. In fact, it happens just a few days after the disciples, the first disciples are, are recruited, you might say, by Jesus. Let's read about it. Turn back to John chapter 2. And... Can't pick up one page today. Come on. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not, has yet, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Hmm. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, according, uh, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted, had tasted the water uh, that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. All right, so what do we have here? Well, let's talk a little about that. They're in Cana of Galilee. And it says they're on the third day. Third day of what? What does that mean, the third day? Well, most likely that's just the third day after Jesus had made two disciples, right? And it takes about two days to reach Galilee from Judea. You know, they didn't have cars back then, so they had to walk. Or, I don't know, maybe ride a camel or something. But it took a couple of days to get to Galilee from Judea. So most likely that's why there's three days there. Cana was about four miles northeast of Nazareth and southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, look back in chapter 1 there in verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. He wanted to go to Galilee. He was in Judea. He wanted to go there. So we know that. So they were headed to Galilee, and for some reason, we have this mention of a wedding going on in Cana. Now we did know John chapter 21 that Nathanael was from the city of Cana 
And I mentioned last week uh, about Nathaniel uh, some things that we don't know for sure, some perhaps uh, uh, traditions or, or something that, you know, that, that somebody wrote later that perhaps Nathaniel might have been the bridegroom at the wedding. Don't know that, not sure, but it, it might be a possibility, and perhaps that's why they were there. We have a wedding feast, all right? Well, what do we know about that? Well, Mary was there, apparently. She, the mother of Jesus was there. And likewise, Jesus and his disciples, who had been invited, it says. Um, now, interesting thing about Jesus I want to mention here, and, and the disciples. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Let's read something from that chapter. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9. Verse, uh, let's go to verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Turn over to chapter 11. Look at verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Apparently, Jesus and his disciples were not exactly like John. What did John eat? Locusts and wild honey. Not very appetizing, is it? But Jesus and the disciples apparently ate pretty well. They were not ascetics. They were not necessarily people being disciplined about their diet. And they attended a wedding feast. Now, I know you've all been to weddings, and some are bigger than others, I know that. But what do people do at a wedding feast? They eat a lot of food, right? It's not necessarily a place for somebody that's on a diet. And there's a lot of cake, a lot of fattening food, right? Some plant some more than others. When our daughter was married, we had a sweets bar there and that, that candy is still sitting in my basement <laughs> a lot of it and i try not to mess with it. i don't know i probably won't eat it now it probably make me sick but they 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 were eating and drinking there wasn't anything that was a problem for them well what happens at the at the wedding the wine runs out right there's no more wine and that's noted by mary and so, so apparently Mary, the mother of Jesus, has some kind of responsibility with this wedding, some kind of role. Perhaps, perhaps she's the person in charge of the feast. And the invitation to Jesus and disciples may have even been like a, you know, a last-minute thing, right? He's in Judea. They're asked to come you know, at the last minute. And that's why they, you know, they mentioned the three days, perhaps. But at a wedding feast, if you had run out of the wine... 
that would kind of been embarrassing, right? And if Mary's in charge, what's that going to say about her if they run out of wine, right? Running out of wine, been embarrassment, and what does she do? Well, she goes up to Jesus and she says, we're running out of wine. All right. She doesn't say anything else, really. just says, we're running out of wine. Like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and what's Jesus' response to her? Woman? Hmm. Now, I think most of you in here have grown children. Some of you have still a little younger. If you have a young child and your child goes up and says, Woman? What's the first thing you're going to think? Hmm. What do you have to say, child? And if you're grown, you know, if your kids are grown and they said that, well, maybe that's a little different, but still, there seems to be a little bit of disrespect going on there, doesn't it? Turn over to chapter 19. Let's read something about that. Chapter 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, who do we say the disciple he loved was? John. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. Perhaps that word was not as disrespectful sounding as it might sound to us today, right? Perhaps... It was a subtle hint to the relationship between Jesus and Mary. That was probably changing a bit, right? Or had changed quite a bit, right? What does your concern have to do with me? Now, when Mary goes to Jesus and says, they're running out of wine, what do you think's in the back of her mind a little bit there? I mean, does she know anything about Jesus? Well, yeah, she knows about Jesus. She knows he's the Messiah. She knows that he is the Son of God. She's seen him in the temple when he was younger. And remember, John said there's all kinds of other things that are not written about that happened. So I'm sure she's seen many other things. She knows what he can do. So, sure, that's part of that, right? Back of her mind saying, I know you can take care of this for me, right? And what does Jesus say to her? Well, he gives her a little mild rebuke there, doesn't he? He says, my hour has not yet come. <clears throat> and that suggests, right, that Mary's requesting him to do something that's supernatural, right? That's perhaps a miracle. That may manifest his being the Son of God. And he says, my hour has not yet come. It's not the time for that yet. Not the time. Perhaps she's saying, I want you to tell these folks who you are. I want a supreme manifestation of the Messiah. Perhaps that's what she's thinking. Probably a little bit like Martha and Mary. You remember Martha? In fact, let's just look at that. Luke 10. Turn over there real quick. Verse uh, 
41, and Jesus answered and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. You remember, Martha was worried about Mary not helping. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus while she's preparing the meal. You're worried about things that you don't need to be worrying about. My hour has not yet come. Well, what happens next? Turn over to John. Let's we'll stay in John 2, actually. Let's look at verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to him, What sign? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now turn over to chapter 12. Verse 23, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Hmm. So, we have an inclination here that it's not that time yet, right? It's not that time. They are asking about these signs. They're saying, what about them? They're saying, not my time yet. Because there's going to come a time when... We know the Lord's going to die, and he's going resurre- to be resurrected, and he will be glorified. Yes? Right. Yep. Interesting point. That's a great segue what I was going to talk about next. Gene, very good. Yeah. Uh, she's seeking for a supreme sign. He's saying, it's not that time, uh, not time for that to happen. Uh, the triumph of the Pentecost was not to happen at Cana. We know that, and that's to fulfill the prophecy as well, right? But Mary was evidently sensing a willingness on Jesus' part. She knew that deep down he was going to do what she wanted him to do. And you think about that a minute, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up, because... As I mentioned before, when we're in prayer, when we're seeking out God's will or we're asking him for things, we should have confidence, right? Mary knew who he was. She believed, right? She had confidence in what he could do. And your mom, you know your kids, right? She knew he was going to do it. She knew that in the back of her mind. She's not necessarily asking him straight out. She's being a little subtle about it. But she knew that, right? And it is interesting how, even though he's saying, it's not my time, he's rebuking her a little bit. He goes ahead and does it. Yeah. And that's what we'll talk about next, the miracle. What happens? The water turned to wine. Begins with what? Six empty water pots, right? Turn over to Mark chapter 7 real quick. Let's read about that. Chapter 7. Verse 1. And then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with uh, with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from, this market, from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received in whole, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and, cou and uh, couches. So this was a ritual that they had. They, had to, they washed their hands before eating, a ritual of purification. We know there are six empty water pots that are normally used for that ritual of purification. And think about that a minute. If you're washing your hands with those pots, I mean, I, they're probably pouring the water out, but it's not necessarily something that you would think is very clean, would you? I mean, after it's being used, right? Yet, that's what's going to be used. Capable of holding 20 or 30 gallons each, or in the King James, two or three firkins, filled with water, as instructed by Jesus, to the brim. That's a lot of water, isn't it? A lot of water. A sample is drawn out and taken to the master of the feast, as instructed by Jesus, carried out by the servants. And apparently, it, when it was drawn, it was still water, apparently. Uh, but it became wine before being given to the guests. What's, what's the impact on those that were there? Well, apparently the master of the feast, when he tasted it, thought they had waited to give the good wine at the end of the wedding which was not according to custom, right? Not according to custom. Telling him he kept the good wine for last, contrary to what should be done. What do you think the disciples of Jesus are thinking about this? Turn over to uh, chapter 4 there. Let's read something about that. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. All right. So we know there were two miracles performed at first in Cana. Right? We know... That was the beginning of the signs. So this is the beginning of those signs. It's the beginning of Jesus' manifestation of his glory. Remember we talked about, in, when we're picking in verse 14, how he's going, he's, he, his glory was beheld by those who were his disciples. Now they're seeing that. Now they're seeing that glory and power that Jesus has through God. So what do you think happens to their faith because of that? What we just read here, he's saying, you've got to see signs to believe. Well, surely their faith is being strengthened, right? Because they're seeing the signs now. They're seeing that glory. They're seeing that he is from God. All right. Make a little mention of the impact on us today. And one thing I want to mention is, you might have heard somebody use the turning the water to wine to justify, I don't know, 
drinking, social drinking perhaps. I'm sure some of you or maybe all of you have heard that before, right? And, and I want to caution you on that because I, it's not really good to try to use something from, the, from you know, not the Old Testament, from old times, Bible times, to justify something today, right? Uh, the word oinos, O-I-N-O-S, can refer to for fermented wine, but not necessarily. Not necessarily going to be referring to something that's, uh, that can make you drunk, right? Uh, alcoholic drinks today are much stronger than they would have been in Jesus' time or in the Bible times. They just are. Uh, I know, you can make an argument, well, it still can get you drunk, and, and yeah, they, they got drunk in, in Bible times. But it is very different. But keep in mind, using one little phrase or one little section of the Bible to try to justify something is not a good idea. You need to take it all into account, right? The Bible's full of the dangers of drinking. Turn over to Proverbs. Let's read a few verses. I just want to, not, I'm kind of digressing a little bit, but not. But let's look at Proverbs uh, to see what it has to say about that. Proverbs verse 20. I mean, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I mean, that, that's, that kind of says it all right there, right? You know, that's a, showing you right there. Drinking is a danger. It causes bad things to happen. Turn over to Proverbs 23. Look down at about verse 29 and pay attention to the wording of these verses. It's very, it's very interesting, I, I'll have to say. It's very cool, I'll say. Verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake that I may seek another drink? <laughs> uh, I love that proverb. I love those verses. I mean, that's basically saying it like it is, isn't it? You're going to drink. That's what's going to happen. Well, uh, we also have to think about things like our example, right? I'm not going to go. You could go to Romans 14 or, or 1 Corinthians 10. You could also go to 1 Corinthians 6 where... Paul gives a list of those who would not have any part of heaven. One of the words in there is drunkards. So, to say something like this, turning the water to the wine, that they had wine at the wedding feast, is an excuse for drinking, not a good thing. We know the dangers of drinking. We know where it can lead. We know that drunkenness is condemned. Drunkards will have no part in heaven. Not a good thing, right? Well, I don't want to spend too much time on that. I did want to mention that, though. Be careful about doing that. <clears throat> this miracle of turning water to wine reveals Jesus, right? Reveals things, perhaps for the first time, to the disciples. Reveals things to us because we can read about it. 
we can see their testimony. We can see one who honors the bond of marriage, right? He's honoring the bond of marriage by being present at the wedding. One who, as June brought up, he bestows his gifts lavishly, right? Even though he's saying to Mary, it's not my time yet, but okay, I'm going to do it, I'll do it, and I'm going to bestow my gifts lavishly on you. Or I'm going to, I'm going to do this for you in the physical realm, bestow my gifts. And think about that. Scripture says, ah, uh, seek and you shall find, right? Ask and you shall receive. Think about if he's going to give us gifts in this life, how much more in heaven? How much more? How much greater, right? One whose infinite love is made effective by his equally infinite power. What's the first attribute of God? God is love infinitely in the same sense he has infinite power he loves us as his children believers faithful servants he's going to bestow thing gifts on us he's going to answer our prayers he's going to bless us in ways that we don't even know ourselves we have that confidence we should one who accordingly because of the signs we can see it is the Son of God. And as chapter 1 says, full of grace and glory. We can behold that glory just as much as the first disciples could, right? We can do it. Well, after this miracle in Cana, Jesus went down to Capernaum. We read that in verse 12. Capernaum was a city on the northwest side of Galilee, visited frankly by Jesus. And it's right on the coast there, so perhaps that was where Jesus wanted to go to, you know, to be refreshed a little bit. He does go with his family, mother and his brothers. Uh, if you could turn, if, I'm not going to read it, but if you turn to Matthew 13, you'll read his, the names of his brothers. They all went there together, it says. And they were there for a short time. Kind of makes it sound like he decided to take a little vacation there after he kind of recruited the first disciples and did the first miracle. It was time to get a little R&R before the ministry was going to pick back up. Well, the disciples must have been pretty excited, right? They had heard the testimony of John the Baptist, right? They had been following him, and John had said, there's one greater than me. I'm not the Christ. I am not worthy to loose the straps of his sandals. They'd heard that, and they'd heard John point to him. John knew when he came to be baptized that he was the Messiah. He heard the words of God. He saw the dove, the Lord's coming down like a dove on, his, on Jesus when he was baptized. He knew who he was. Now the disciples are seeing the manifestation of his power, manifestation of his glory. If there was any doubt, it's starting to be, it's starting to recede, isn't it? We, we know ultimately they didn't, completely get it, right? They didn't completely get it because we know Peter, what did he do? When Jesus was arrested, was taken, he denied him, right? He still had the doubt. It was not until that resurrection occurred that they knew for sure, right? They knew for sure. This initial testimony 
of Jesus, so it was very exciting. They had a sign. They had a sign that this was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And we can see that too. We have that testimony, right? Now, we don't have the miraculous gifts today like they did in the first century or the, or the first century church, particularly at the beginning. Uh, we know from Scripture, go to, all you got to do is go to 1 Corinthians and read around 12 and 13 about the spiritual gifts and how they would go away when the complete was come, how we see in a mirror darkly now, but then we'll see face to face and that kind of thing. But this as the scripture said, was given so that you might believe. And that even more so, we have the record of it. We have the ability to go back and see what the disciples see. Well, they're going to get more signs, right? More coming. I just read about the second one. Uh, we know from the synoptics there were many more signs given. We know from John there were many more signs given. And we could read about all of them. We can see what happened. The results of what happened, right? Even at the point of raising the dead. Remember? Remember Lazarus? Yeah. Pretty spectacular things. Things that have not happened since. Um, as I mentioned, miracles are supernatural. There's something that's done that man cannot do, right? But man can kind of fake things out sometimes, right? Man can kind of say things to make think, oh, well, this or that. You know, I, I can do this, I can do that. We kind of saw that a little bit when Moses went before Pharaoh, remember what happened? He turned the rod into a serpent, and it says, I don't know, the magicians, the sorcerers did it too. Obviously, it wasn't supernatural. They were using trickery, right? But we can know that Jesus is the Son of God by these signs because they were supernatural. Mentioned about the water, apparently was still water when it was in the pot, when they drew it out. It would not have turned to wine until the guests were able to taste it, or the master of the feast was able to taste it. I think the reason they're showing that is the fact that there's no way a man could have done it. Right? That's showing right there that it came from God. So, was that... That's another thing that we can have to provide us confidence, right? We have these records of the manifestation of his glory and his power. God is in control. We have that confidence. We have this election coming up. God's in control. We've had a lot of strife in the last few months. This evening we're going to be speaking on uh, some things about race, particularly in the church. Uh, but you've seen a lot of things, I'm sure, in the news over the last few months of what's been going on. Wouldn't it be great if some of those folks that you've seen out there that are saying bad things or doing bad things got to see the water turn to wine? Wouldn't that have been wonderful? Were you wondering what might have happened if some of them had seen that? As we go through John, it's one thing I want you to pay attention to. Pay close attention to the way Jesus showed his love, showed who he was, showed that he attested to God through his signs and wonders. And not just that, through the love that he showed the disciples. 
and those around him. Those who are willing to believe in him, you're going to see that many times. Because of your faith, you've been healed. Things like that. It's a wonderful study. I'm glad you're here. Our time is up. See you next week.